Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, my goodness, I'm so glad it's Christmas season. For real. You know, this year has, has been kind of, a, kind of a bumpy year, hasn't it? It's kind of been a, a tough year, 2016. I mean, don't get me wrong, there have been tough years in the past, and there will be tough years in the future, but this particular one just feels like in our national context, in our nation, seems to be a, a lot of things that just have happened that remind us of, of how divided and, and, and how chaotic uh, the, the world we live in is, right? I mean, we've, we've, had, uh, we've had an election that you couldn't even have your kids watch the debates because it was so dirty and insane. Uh, we, we've had, uh, we've had uh, shootings in schools and shootings in our city and, and, and acts of violence that, that have felt very, very close to home. And we have had uh, acts of violence that were tied to terrorism invading our space, felt close to home. Uh, we, have, we have experienced the reality of, of racial divide and tension in, in ways perhaps that we haven't in a long time, just in terms of its visibility, certainly in its invisibility always, but in its visibility. And so it's just been a year full of a little bit of tension, chaos, insanity. And, and we get to enter the Christmas season kind of at the end of the year. And it feels like finally, you know, finally we're here. Finally, we get into a Christmas season where, where we, can, we can grab a hold a little bit again of, of peace and of, of goodwill toward men. You know, that, that just feels right and good. I mean, just think, you know, this Christmas season, all of your kids are off school the entire Christmas season. Peace and goodwill toward men. Yeah, that's not going to go well. You have to hang lights if you're part of America and you're a decent human. And you have to do it on the second story with the icicle things on a ladder that's 16 years old. That's going to be awesome. Oh, wait, wait. You get to shop on the busiest season of the entire year at places you don't want to go to buy things you don't want to buy for people you don't even like. It's going to be awesome, right? Because you can't find them on Amazon because they're sold out there. So you got to go to Walmart. You know what I'm saying? So you're going out, you're doing your thing. And of course, the biggest season of travel is right here before us. Either you're going or they're coming. And either way, that's stressful, right? And then there's the office parties that if you don't go to, you don't care about your office, so you have to be at though you don't want to. And so you enter a season that has a promise in it, right? This is the season that promises peace and goodwill toward men. And all you encounter, if you are like me, is entering into a season that you just want to get through to January. You know what I'm saying? Because it does not feel peaceful, does it? It doesn't feel quiet. Now, some of you here, for this particular Christmas, you might be going, this one actually does. We're now great, fantastic. Don't worry, it won't last. Because it never does. And so we come into a season of peace and it doesn't feel like peace. And yet, yet the Christmas story says that this is a season that reminds us, that, that draws us in, that captivates our hearts once again with this idea that we have peace. Why is that? Why is it that there is a season that promises peace and yet it doesn't feel like peace exists in the season? In fact, it feels like the season in of itself projects greater chaos than the rest of the year that feels chaotic. I think it's important we examine this because if it's a season that promises peace and it doesn't actually, then we are doing this all wrong. But if it does actually, then we need to figure out why and how. So let's jump in. Let's go back for a minute into the time where the initial events took place 
that, that allow us to celebrate this season where Jesus was actually entering into the planet and being born, and that's what we celebrate. So during that time, there was a context happening around the events of Christmas that we should be aware of. You see, at the time before Jesus came, there was great turmoil in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had been at civil war for a number of years before the coming of Christ. And it had nothing to do with coming or not coming of Christ. They just were at civil war. There was a great political battle and, honestly, a lot of warring between the factions internally in Rome. In particular, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra were on one end of the spectrum, and they were fighting hard to gain political control and control of Rome. And on the other side, Caesar Augustus was fighting against Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And so for a number of years, there was internal and external warring going on. At a certain point, um, Caesar Augustus overthrew Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And so they died out of the picture and Caesar Augustus took power. When he took power and he won the day, he sent out emissaries all over the Roman Empire and they went town to town, city to city, and this is what they announced on behalf of Caesar Augustus, who has now taken power. They pronounced great news, good news. There will now be peace on earth for all men, okay, and goodwill. Because Caesar Augustus has won the day and the evil enemies are taken care of and now you can expect instead of a tumultuous, chaotic, divided society, you can expect a society at peace. Now, the truth is that with uh, Caesar Augustus coming into power, there was a portion of the Roman society that was thrilled about that, right? Because they tended to find themselves in the spaces where they would benefit from him being in power. And so when he declared peace, finally, many people in the Roman Empire that were in the aristocrat kind of categories and the wealthy and the people that were involved in the politics, they were thrilled. Yes, amen, peace on earth, finally for all men. But it didn't feel like peace to most in the Roman Empire. It didn't feel like peace to the Jewish people, that's for sure. It felt the opposite of peace to them. So this declared peace to all mankind didn't feel like peace, kind of like the Christmas season. It says it's going to be peace, but it's not. And so you're living in this world where you're like, what does this mean? Into this context where a peace was declared by Caesar Augustus that was not really a peace at all, God begins to invade the story. So that the invasion comes first with a few declarations from some supernatural beings that were sent by God. An angel encounters Zechariah, tells him that the one who was prophesied who will prepare the way for the Messiah is going to be born of his wife. Then there's a young couple in Nazareth, Mary and Joseph. Uh, angel appears to Mary and then also to Joseph later on and declares that the, 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 the creator and sustainer of the universe is going to be conceived supernaturally in her womb, enter a body and be born onto our planet to become the Messiah. That's incredible. They travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus, after taking power to establish peace around the entire world, is now going to count how many people he has and how much stuff he can extract from them so that he can have the resources to produce peace. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Anyways, uh, moving on. Um, and so... Uh, this is happening. Uh, Joseph and Mary are heading toward Bethlehem. The, the, the night they get to Bethlehem, 
uh, we find out from the story that Mary, uh, the, the, the journey was longer than I think they anticipated. And as you know, when you're pregnant, if you're doing that much activity, it tends to move things along. And so Mary enters Bethlehem and she's like, it's, it's, it's coming now. And so she's about to give birth. And while all these events are taking place in the quiet, just outside of Bethlehem, there are a couple of guys um, and they are doing their job. It's, it's, it's late in the watches of the night and they are watching sheep. They're called shepherds. And um, in particular, what's interesting about these particular guys is we don't know this for sure, for sure from history, but from certain assumptions that we can make uh, based on the geography of where these shepherds are watching their sheep, it is very likely that they have a particularly significant job as shepherds because the sheep just outside of Bethlehem would have been five miles outside of Jerusalem and all of the hills around Jerusalem were set aside to watch the sheep that were being raised to be unblemished so that they might be used in the sacrificial system to be able to produce an atonement for the people of Israel before God. So these shepherds aren't just chilling out watching some sheep. They are watching the answer, the sheep that are going to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. That's a big deal. You do not leave those sheep behind. They die. Israel's in trouble. You with me? And so they're hanging out. They're watching the sheep. They're doing their job. And a bunch of angels appear to them in the fields on the very night that Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. The declaration of peace from Caesar Augustus has gone out, but it doesn't feel like peace. And this is what they say. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles we provide, we're on page 949, 949. Uh, If you have a smart device or you brought one of your own Bibles, then Luke chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Okay? So here's what it says, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Obviously, a glowing guy shows up with a giant sword and starts talking to you. You will be afraid. It's, it's not a question. You will be afraid. And the angel said to them what every angel in angel school learns at day one. Whenever you encounter a human being, start with fear not because they will be afraid. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So, a declaration from, from the political system goes out, great news, peace on earth. And now God invades that space and says, let me say it a little louder, a little differently. Okay? I have the real good news for you. I have real good news for you. Here's the good news. Take a look. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Now listen, here it is. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It is a beautiful declaration because... From a theological standpoint, understanding the reality of the Old Testament, the the garden incident in the Garden of Eden and what we did as human beings, God should not be in any way pleased with us, right? He should not be for us. He should be against us in every way. And he says here, I've got great news 
Though I ought to be against you today in the city of David, Bethlehem, a child is being born. And in that birth, here's what you can expect. That God is going to give you peace and he is going to be pleased with you. Okay, what is this word peace? Well, the word peace is translated in the Hebrew language as the word shalom. Okay, shalom is peace. And when we, when we encounter the word shalom, we translate it into English as the word peace. The trouble is that we in the English language have much, have lost in, 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 in a big way the reality of what peace actually is. Because we think of peace as the absence of conflict or war. So, or potentially noise if you have eight kids, right? So, so, um, so when, when, there, when there isn't noise, when there isn't war, when there isn't conflict, then we are at peace. But the trouble is that in that translation, understanding this as God brings peace on earth, in other words, an absence of war, an absence of conflict, really is a very small idea of what the word was meant to mean. What is this word shalom supposed to capture that we can translate into peace in English, but we need more words for it to understand its intent as God created this idea of shalom toward you? Shalom was born as a concept out of the early part of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. When God first created us into the story and created creation, you remember, if you've ever read it, that in the sequence of creation, God, as he made each part, what did he say about it? He, uh, he made something and then he said, this is good. This is good. This is right. This is as it should be. This is this is the fullness of what I intended. And then he would create another thing and he'd say, this is good. And then he got to us and he created us as human beings. And at first, when he created us not in community, he even said, it's not as it quite should be yet. Let me finish the story out. He creates Adam and Eve in, in their oneness and he goes, this is very good. This is very good. Now, the idea of shalom is the concept that comes out of that creation experience that says, when everything is as it should be, when everything is right, then it is shalom. It is at peace. It is not about the absence of war. It is about so much more. Here's what it is. When everything is in harmony, because in creation, that's what we had, right? We were in harmony with God, we were in harmony with one another, and we were in harmony with all of creation. Creation was in harmony with us, and creation was in harmony with itself. So there was, there was this beautiful uh, absence of chaos. There was no chaos. Then beyond harmony, it's also the idea of integrity. See, we use the word integrity as a character issue, which it's appropriate to use that. But in, in, in science, the word integrity means when something is not broken, when it is, its structural integrity, we would say, is intact. What we mean is nothing's broken and it is working as it should. It has integrity. And so when something is in harmony and it is full of integrity, it is as it should be, working as it should be. And it is in unity instead of division. So there's no division. There is unity. There is like-mindedness. There is connectiveness. And it is at peace the way we think of peace, the opposite of conflict. So it is absent of conflict. It is absent of division. It is absent of the lack of integrity, brokenness. And it is absent of chaos. Then you have the word shalom. 
You with me? Where do we encounter the word shalom as a concept? We encounter the word shalom as a concept in the first two chapters of Genesis. First two chapters of the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, do you know what happens to shalom? It goes away. It disappears. We decide in our being captivated by our own destinies and our own divinity, buy into the lie of the enemy, and we decide to eat of the fruit because the enemy says to us, if you do, you'll know what he knows. The reason he told you you're going to die is because he doesn't want you to be like him. And we went, oh, I, I get it. And we ate of the fruit, and instead of receiving divinity and, and, and writing our own destinies, we received exactly what God said we would, which was sin entered our story, and with it came death. And death brought with it the absence of shalom. So now we were catapulted into chaos. We were catapulted into brokenness. We were catapulted into division. And we were catapulted into conflict. We were at conflict with ourselves. We were at conflict with one another. We were at conflict with creation. We were at conflict with God, right? Creation was no longer for us and we were no longer for creation. You say, what does that mean? Tsunamis, volcanoes, earthquakes, uh, tornadoes, trees falling on you. Uh, all sorts of, and you said, I, I wasn't afraid before I came in, Renault, but now I am afraid. Creation is against me. Well, yes, it, everything is against everything because shalom is lost. Do you know the next time we encounter the concept of shalom as an experience or an expression? In other words, we're reading the Bible and we're like, oh, oh, there it is. There's the shalom that we had in chapter 1 and 2 and it's been, it's been found again. Do you know when we encounter that? Here it is. Ready? Ready? Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. No joke. Not kidding. First two chapters of the Bible, shalom. Last two chapters of the Bible, shalom. Chapter 3 of Genesis, brokenness, catapulted into chaos, absolute death. Revelation chapter 20, the full realization of that brokenness in judgment and wrath of God poured out on all evil. <laughs> so all the way from chapter 3 to, to the, the, the third last chapter in the Bible, it is the absence of shalom and the, and the wrath of God that is directed toward evil except for the, the, the few chapters on the, on the bookends. But here's the thing. I want to be very clear about this. The Bible should have ended in Revelation chapter 20. That should have been the end of the story. Considering the first two chapters of the Bible and then chapter three where we abandon God and we lose shalom, the way it should have ended for all of us as a human race is Revelation chapter 20. There should be no chapter 21. There should be no chapter 22. There should only be chapter 20, which is the consequence of chapter 3 in Genesis is now the wrath of God poured out on evil, and we are evil enemies of God. And so we are children of wrath. Therefore, we are recipients of judgment, and we will never again have an opportunity to know shalom. But it doesn't end in Revelation chapter 20. Do you know why it doesn't end? In Revelation chapter 20. Ah, oh, now that's an important question to ask, isn't it? That we find out in multiple places, but in particular, in clarity in the book of Isaiah. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah. So, we are now in the middle space. The middle space, the middle movie, whatever you want to call it. And we are in the absence of shalom. And Isaiah the prophet speaks to the people. And listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter... 
11, Isaiah chapter 11. So this is on page 640 if you're using one of our Bibles we provide, or if you have your own Bible or a smart device, is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. So into the story of disaster coming out of chapter 2 of Genesis into chapter 3, the absence of shalom, the absence of harmony, the absence of, of, of peace, the absence of unity, the absence of integrity, nothing works as it should. Here's what we get. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the, stamp, the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. It's talking about someone that is going to appear on the scene in the middle story between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And this person is going to be of the root of Jesse and he will carry with him something amazing. Okay, and then look at this. Look at this. This is so awesome. It talks a little bit more about who he is. And in verse five, it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then it's about to tell us now what is going to occur as the result of him coming to our space. Here it is. Watch. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, that doesn't mean the wolf got smart and figured out if I invite the lambs in, I can eat anytime I want. This actually means they will live, wait for it, in harmony together, in shalom as it should be. Look at this. And the leopard shall lay down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. I love that they added fattened calf to this. It's almost like the author is saying, just in case you think the lion's chilling with an emancipated lamb and doesn't really want to eat him because he's so thin, he's like, I can't do it. No, no, this was a juicy lamb. It was a juicy lamb. The lion would usually go, that one. I'm eating that one. And that fattened calf is laying quietly with a the lion. They're chilling and chatting. It's so beautiful. Look at this. Now it gets better. Watch this. And a little child shall lead them. And that's very, very important when you talk about what the ultimate expression of uh, shalom is, of harmony and unity and integrity and peace. You take a little child and you put them with a giant dangerous animal, right? So we know when that actually happens in our world today, that does not produce a sense of joy for us. We don't, we don't YouTube that and go, look how cute little the kid is with the lion, right? We don't do that. In fact, when a kid climbs over some zoo thing and lands in a gorilla's cage, we all start going nuts and we're like, find the parent. What happened? Who's saving the kid? Somebody shoot the gorilla. And then a few people go, no, and hurt the poor gorilla. And we're like, you can't not hurt the gorilla because they're kid. Now, if it was an adult, we would go, foolish adult. Why would you do something like that? You probably deserve what's coming to you. But when it's a child, there's something very different about that, isn't there? Because there's an innocence about that. The child didn't know. That's why we also don't put children with wild animals, because they're unpredictable. When an adult is in front of a lion, you do things like this. Back away, very slowly, don't say a word. Nice kitty, nice kitty. But what does a kid do? They walk up to the lion, look at the whiskers, and go, oh, can I pull one? ka -jink. And so you kind of go, don't put the kids with the lions. 
because they're going to provoke the lion and the lion will eat them. And so, uh, so this is an amazing statement. And the little child shall lead them. Now, as though that's not enough, look what he says. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lay down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I don't think the lions are thrilled about that, but they will be redeemed and so it won't matter. Um, now watch this. This is super cool. This is super cool. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Okay, so do you know what a cobra is? A cobra is a very poisonous, very aggressive, very dangerous snake. Do you know where they use cobras? In Indiana Jones movies, okay? And do you ever see one cobra? No, it's a den of cobras. That's why they say playing over the hole of the cobras. It's saying there's lots of cobras. They're very poisonous and they are designed to kill humans. And we're going to take an infant and they're going to go play with the cobras. Go chill with the cobras, YouTube. Look how cute the kid playing with the cobras. Today we would go nuts. But in this time, it won't matter because harmony, integrity, unity, and peace will exist as a result of this root of Jesse who will come and set things right. Take a look at this. They, <laughs> and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. An another very poisonous snake. Don't play with snakes today. Wait till redemption. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waves cover the sea. Mm. See, in, in Isaiah, we get this picture of one who is to come that will carry with him the power to take what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2 and bring it back so that Revelation 21 and 22 will be realized again. Who is this root of Jesse? Well, in chapter 9, it actually tells us, shoot back one chapter to chapter 9, uh, two chapters uh, to chapter 9 in Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now we're right in the Christmas story. This will sound very familiar to you because this is Christmas stuff right here. Chapter, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Ready? Wait, wait for it. The Prince of Shalom. Not just peace. Shalom, the prince of shalom, the prince that carries with him harmony and unity and integrity and peace. The one that takes our world of chaos and division and brokenness and war and undoes it. This one is coming. And when he comes, the journey back to shalom will be realized. Listen to this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, just a few pages ahead, page 684. This now begins to unpack for us since this one, this child who's given this root of Jesse comes and sets things right. Let us take a look at the ultimate means by which these things are set right. Look at this, Isaiah 53. How is it that our story doesn't end in Revelation chapter 20 of judgment and wrath, but in Revelation 21 and 22 of shalom, of peace? Here's why. Surely, surely, he has bore our griefs, verse 4, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
Wow. This is the means by which we will realize Revelation 21 and 22 as the end of our story instead of wrath and judgment. In the New Testament, the New Testament authors unpack this for us in a little more clarity once they have realized who this root of Jesse is, who this son that was given is in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, it tells us how on earth we ended up not in a bad end to a bad story, but in a beautiful end to a tough story. Listen to this. Ephesians, I passed it. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, page 1079. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So, a clarity. We were Genesis 3 onward. We were dead in the trespasses and sins of our human story. And then look what it says, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What a declaration of rescue that God has come to set things right. And then look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. He who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to this. Go to Colossians. Oh my gosh, there's so much to cover, but I can only cover a little bit of it. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Look at this. Look at this. Verse 19, Colossians chapter 1, page 1086. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Isn't that awesome? This is not just about us. It's about him making shalom real again. He will reconcile all things to himself. All things will be as they were meant to be, right and good. Look at this. Look at this whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Oh my goodness. You see, what this reveals to us is that the Christmas season is a season that promises peace, not because it is going to be quiet and it's going to lack the chaos of the rest of the year and it is going to be absent of noise and insanity. And it is going to be an environment that is lending itself to you and I, taking deep, long breaths with a nice little uh, drink in our hand and watching a sunset potentially on the beach. Wait, I'm just imagining for a second. Wow, that's good. <laughs> but even that is not going to do it. Not in any kind of sustaining way. You see, the beauty of the Christmas season is that we encounter the truth again that our shalom, harmony, and unity, and the absence of war, the, the absence of conflict, peace, and the, the beauty of integrity, the absence of brokenness is not ours by some sequence of environmental creations we make. There is, there is no amount, no amount of distractions, no amount of indulgences, no amount of accomplishments that you and I as human beings will be able to affect that will produce in us shalom because shalom is too big. For that It might produce the absence of conflict for a short-lived period of time, which will make you feel like you are at peace, but even then you will be at conflict with yourself <laughs> because you live in a body of flesh. So here's the thing. 
our journey toward peace this Christmas season is not environmental. It is not found in what we affect or think. It is found in what we realize, in what we encounter in the story of Christmas, that the peace that we need, the shalom we need, comes from the Prince of Shalom. And he was born into a manger in Bethlehem on a particular night in the midst of an environment where humans were trying to force peace on a people group. And God came and said, that's not how it's going to come. There's a baby in a manger. And what he is going to do is going to affect not only shalom now and the progressiveness of shalom in your life, but it's going to produce two new chapters at the end of the book of Revelation that I have written into the story because of what he has done. You will have shalom again. And then when we encounter that truth, it begins to recalibrate the way we see today, the way we experience chaos, the way we in, in, engage in noise and conflict, because what Philippians says is he will produce a peace that what? Transcends understanding. It should not be because the environment does not lend itself to it, but it is because the environment does not determine peace or shalom. All of you here can share stories, especially if you know Christ, you certainly can share stories of what it is like to encounter the gospel and then how that recognition of future peace, of future shalom, affects the way you see and live life to bring you peace even now. But one of those stories in our midst is a super cool story I want you to hear. It is Victoria's story, and she encountered the gospel and saw it change the way her life played out in terms of where she was trying to seek out peace and where she ended up finding it, not in an activity, not in an event, not in an accomplishment, but in a person a person we celebrate Christmas. Take a look at this story. Some of the best golfers in the world go to work, including Victoria Tanko after her eight birdies yesterday. Just four today, but she's dominating the female competition. And she and her partner leading the women's division by one. 14 birdies total on the week. She's got a collection of them. My life before Jesus was all about golf and all about myself. I was lost without a purpose and I was just trying to do my best with the circumstances that I had. Everything depended on how I performed because my purpose was in golf. If I was good, if I was performed well, if I didn't perform that well, you know, my emotions and everything went into that. So I knew about God um, when I was younger back home in Argentina, but I didn't have a whole knowledge um, of God. Martina, we've known each other for 10 years already because we started playing golf from a young age in Argentina. You know, she started posting on Facebook all about Jesus and Jesus this and Jesus that. And I was a little worried about her. I was like, what happened to Martina? So when I moved in with her, I was, you know, cautious and be like, I first gonna see what this Jesus thing is about because I'm not sure if I want to, you know, be a part of that. So it was a little bit of a funny story because she came to meet Christ in college and then when I moved in with her, she was the one that introduced me first to Jesus. 
my friends invited me to church. And I was like, why not? I play golf every day, let's just do something different. And so I went to Mosaic on a Sunday morning, um, and that was the first time I actually you know, went to church after a long, long time. You know, at the beginning, I was like, Mm, this is not my lifestyle, like I don't think this is for me, but you know, meeting people and seeing the love that they had for each other, seeing how much they cared, the freedom that they had, the joy in small things, just made me question, why are people like this? I never ever met people that lived the way they did. I, you know, started asking all the questions that I had about God, about Jesus, and about the Bible, and I started reading the Bible, I started reading books. Three months later, the Holy Spirit called me, and that's when I accepted Christ. At the beginning, when I was just going to church, um, you know, I never read the Bible before, so um, going to the main service was a little bit hard because it was just too much information. So I started going to kids' ministry and I started having fun and dancing to the songs, singing the songs, and just understanding a little bit more um, the message because it was more simple. Then after I was learning, you know, little by little, I decided that it was time for me to go to the main service and now I love it. Being part of Mosaic Church and just doing life with Christians really helped me a lot. And being part of uh, the young adult missionary community and doing life with people my age has been huge. Becoming a Christian has completely transformed me and changed me in so many ways that uh, it's undescribable and uh, feeling the love from brothers and sisters and just having the freedom to be myself and feeling loved and accepted for who I am. Before putting everything in golf and putting my identity and my purpose in golf and now, you know, two years after I'm not playing professionally golf anymore, but I know that I have a purpose now, and my purpose is to live life in mission. You know, my purpose is to share the gospel. My purpose is to expand the kingdom of God. And the joy and the freedom and the hope that living life of Jesus Christ gives you is just unreal now. I have peace in my heart and I want everyone to experience what I experience and I want everyone to have what I have, which is Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And here's the reality, here's the reality, that at the end of the day, though we are taught that we are going to find our peace when the environment around us and the circumstances we're in and the things we do are right, that is not actually true. There is no amount of meditation, no amount of possession, no amount of giving, no amount of isolation, no amount of communing that you or I could do. No accomplishments, no distractions, no indulgences that we could affect ourselves in that will produce for us shalom. We can get massages and pedicures and manicures and everything else mercures that we can and it won't matter. 
Now, those things in of themselves are not bad. Don't say, my pastor said I can never get a pedicure again. They're very helpful, and they do affect some sense of quiet in our lives. So do all those things, but if you are seeking out to find peace this season as it is promised in the Christmas season by hopefully engaging into a season that is absent of chaos and absent of conflict and absent of the noise and insanity, the dividing lines and the, and the realities in which we live that things are not as they should be, then you will not find peace. Because peace in the Christmas story is not found in the circumstances in which we live. It is found in the baby who is born. And here's where peace is found. Are you ready? Because Jesus came, because he was born, because he lived and because he died and because he rose from the dead, God wrote two more chapters onto the book of Revelation. Now, he was always going to do that, which is super cool. But they don't belong, you understand, in our story. But they do now because Jesus came. You and I have peace that transcends understanding. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus and set our minds on things above, then we find what we've been looking for, the ability to engage in our dailiness, in the chaos of this yet unredeemed planet, in devotion to Christ and on mission for the kingdom, at peace not with this, but at peace with what Jesus has done for us. This is the gift of Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Let's pray. God, thanks. Thanks so much that you bothered to reveal your story to us. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, onward through the Old Testament, the Gospels, your coming, the story of Luke, the shepherds, the angels, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the wise men from the east. I mean, just the whole thing. God, thanks for telling us all this. We could never have known this without you telling us. Thanks for the rest of the letters in the New Testament, the beauty of Ephesians, the wonder of Colossians, and so many other spaces that unpack for us the realities of what Christ affected for us this Christmas as we enter into our Christmas weekend next week. May we find ourselves captivated by the beauty that there are two chapters on the end of the Bible that don't and should not belong outside of the great work of the root of Jesse, the child who was given, the one who would come and would carry with him peace, shalom. Thank you that he is ours, that we are his. Jesus, thank you for being who you are. This Christmas, we worship you. We rest in you. We are captivated by you. We are in awe of you. We are not going to look for peace in our circumstances. We are going to look for peace in you. And we know we will find it there because you are the Prince of Shalom, the one who has written into our story, Revelation 21 and 22, by your great work of redemption. We are forever grateful. Thank you, Jesus.